And for the rest of us, you're going to need a Bible, so why don't you go ahead and grab one, and you can turn to John uh, chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I want you to finish this phrase if you know it, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. So almost everyone knows that phrase, right? And we know that, okay, if I'm going to go and I'm going to unscrew something, and I often say this to myself when I go and do things, righty-tighty, lefty okay, right. And so if I want to unscrew something, it's to the left, lefty-loosey, right? And I've noticed that I've started teaching my kids that as they're like, dad, how does this thing come off? I'm like, well, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. Now, Um, Years ago, we got a bike given to us, um, a kid's bike, and um, our our girls weren't quite to like the pedal bike phase yet, and so I thought, well, I'm going to take this little kid's bike that someone gave us, and I'm going to actually just remove the pedals, the whole like mechanism, remove the pedals, and then if you know what a strider bike is, then they can just kind of pedal with their feet and learn balance, and they can figure it out, and then I'll put the pedals back on one day, and so I remember I, get, I got this bike, and I am just wrenching on this nut to get it off, and I'm like, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, and I am as hard as I possibly can going left on this thing, and I'm just giving it all I've got, and I'm trying to use leverage and all, and I realized that there's such a thing as a left-handed thread, and so what I was actually doing was tightening it, and for an hour, I'm like, why won't this loosen? Getting so frustrated. And then I think I looked something up and I was like, oh, some, sometimes it's not righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. And so then I went right and I was like, oh, it came right off. So the thing, right, sometimes I, uh, we have this view of how something is supposed to work, right? And I, I've grown up, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. That is how it works except for sometimes, Right? And so lots of us, we have a view of what we think is the right way to do something, of what we think this is for sure going to work if I do it this way, when actually the opposite might be true. Right? And we might be actually very, very frustrated going, why isn't it working? When it's because it's actually upside down and backwards to the way that we thought it was supposed to be. This Our passage this morning shows us exactly this. And here's what I mean. We're going to see what is commonly called, right, the triumphal entry. Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And what we're going to see is massive crowds, their view of Jesus was, Jesus is the king. Now let's make this political statement and let's take over now. Let's kick Rome out. Let's get a militia going. And Jesus is king So we're now going to push Rome out and we're going to take over and establish our country again. And Jesus corrects them in a few different ways and basically says, actually, I came to die. I came to do the opposite of what you thought I came to do. And so the question then comes up for us this morning is, um, what is the kingdom of God? Right, we say, well, Jesus is king. What what does that actually mean? What is the kingdom of God? And if you and I are kingdom people, how do you and I live in the kingdom of God today, right? It's not just some future thing. We're in it right now. How do we actually live in it? So we want to examine verses 12 through 26, but I realized in the first service last week, I completely forgot to talk about verses 9 to 11. We read verses 1 to 8, I was so excited to get to the application, and then in the second service, I was like, oh yeah, I completely missed that part. So 
We want to read starting in verse 9 and just cover that little section and then we'll get into our passage. So if you remember dinner party, right? Mary anoints Jesus' feet and, and, and then in verse 9 it says this, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So what this is meant, this, we're seeing Jesus, his popularity is continuing to grow and grow and grow. Now, all of these crowds are now coming to him because, because why? Because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they, they don't only want to just see him, they want to see Lazarus too. And I don't blame them. There's a guy that's been dead four days and he's walking around. I want to go see him and hear his story. Now, it's amazing that the chief priests... Rather than saying, okay, there is like so much evidence for Jesus that we should believe in him. Rather than that, they're saying, let's destroy the evidence. Let's kill Lazarus as well. So now they're plotting two murders. Let's murder Jesus and let's murder Lazarus. Because all of these Jews are now going to Jesus and believing in him. So that's really helpful because it, it helps make sense of our passage for this morning. Verse 12. The next day... Right, so this is after the dinner party. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Right, so amazing picture. Because what we've seen through John is we're seeing Jesus' popularity growing and excitement over who he is. And now it's rising. And now it's kind of at this bubbling over point. We're told that there's this large crowd that came to Jerusalem for the feast. So let me remind you, this is Passover. And, and historians will note that during Passover, the, the population of Jerusalem swelled to sometimes like enormous numbers. Um, uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he recorded a Passover, and, and it's somewhere between the years 66 and 70 AD, so a little bit after Jesus. But he wrote, Josephus wrote that 2.7 million people came to Jerusalem. Now, if he's exaggerating, you go, okay, fine, but still, that's a lot of people. So the, the city of Jerusalem would just swell in population, and there would be all of these people coming to the feast to celebrate the Passover. So you have to picture a big crowd. This is not like 50 people, right, excited about Jesus. This is a big crowd in Jerusalem. And they hear that he's coming. And so what do they do? They take palm branches, which if you don't know, palm branches was, uh, it, it conveyed the notion of victory over your enemies. It became this kind of symbol of of victory. It was a victory thing that you would wave. If you defeated your enemies, you would wave palm branches like, we won, right? So they're waving palm branches, keep that in mind, victory over our enemies, and they're saying, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna literally means, it, it, depending on how you translate it, it either means give salvation now or save now, we pray you. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a request, right? It's, it became later on a, a praise thing that we shout out Hosanna because Jesus has saved us. 
But in that day and age, it was crying out for salvation. Now, not salvation from sins. That's really important. Salvation from our enemies. So, Hosanna, save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Literally, this is taken directly from Psalm 118. So if you read Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's Hosanna. Save us. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then the crowd adds, even the king of Israel. So what they're saying is, Jesus, save us from our enemies. We're waving palm branches. Yes, victory over, who's their enemy? Rome. Victory over Rome. Save us, Jesus. You are the king of Israel, meaning you're the Messiah. So do you want to know what this is? This is a political rally. Right? Pierre Polyev goes to a town and, save us, Pierre, from Trudeau. This is a political rally. Jesus, save us from Rome. Give us victory. They're waving symbols of victory over Rome, and they're shouting out, you're the the king. Give us rest and peace, Jesus, after long sorrow under these Gentiles and their oppression. So think about it. This was the nightmare that the council feared. Right? When they plotted, they said, he, Rome is going to squash us if something like this happens. And now it's happening. They're going, oh, no. What happens if Jesus gets on a horse and gathers some, some uh, armed men? Is he going to do this? Is he going to do an insurrection? Are they going to try this? So it's really, it's similar to John chapter 6, where if you remember, Jesus feeds, you know, thousands and thousands of people, and it says that they want to make him king by force. Same mentality. Jesus is king. Let's do this, Jesus. So the general impression in this passage is that most people in this crowd had no real heart interest in Jesus. They thought that he was a political freedom fighter. He's here. He's going to conquer Rome for us. Now, the reason I say that that's fairly obvious, that no one, I shouldn't say no one, most people at this rally weren't like, yes, my affections, my heart has been changed by Jesus. The reason I can tell that most people just wanted a political freedom fighter, because in like five days, these same crowds are going to be yelling what? Crucify him. We don't want him anymore. Kill him. So here's what's fascinating, though. Jesus doesn't reject the crowd's acclamation this time. If you remember last time, what did Jesus do when they said, we're going to make him king? He, he left. But now he doesn't. He doesn't leave. He allows them to do this act of worship, if you want to call it that. But I love that Jesus corrects it in the rest of our passage. Right? So verse 14, it says this, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus finds a donkey and then sits on it as he rides into Jerusalem. And what he's doing is, on one hand, he's fulfilling Zechariah 9. If you remember when we studied Zechariah, um, it said, right, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. But here's what's so significant about how John sets up this passage. The way that he words it is that the crowd is already worshiping Jesus as Jesus walks in. And they're saying, yes, you're the king of Israel. Yes, save us. 
and then Jesus goes and finds a donkey and sits on it. Now, we might go, well, who cares? But the order matters because what Jesus, I believe, is doing is he's actually correcting their really bad theology. So after they're shouting all of these political statements, Jesus sits on what is commonly known as a symbol of peace. He doesn't find a white stallion and go, yeah, let's do this. He's, he rides in on a donkey. So what he's actually doing, I think, is he's trying to dampen and clamp down on their nationalistic expectations. He goes, I'm not on a war horse, guys. I'm riding on a donkey. I'm actually coming in peace. I'm not coming to do what you want me to do. So here's their responses, right? Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So it gives us hope that the disciples were a little bit thick-headed, right? Because we are too. <laughs> the disciples didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand why the crowds are getting all riled up. They didn't understand riding on the donkey. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing until after Jesus was glorified. So after his resurrection, it was like everything clicked and they went, oh, now I get why he did that. If you remember that this, John says the same thing when Jesus um, clears the temple out. He says in John 2, the disciples didn't understand what he was doing until later. So later on, it's like this, I, I can almost picture it. We're not told this, but I can picture the disciples after Jesus is resurrected and they're given the Holy Spirit. I'm sure they shared memories going, do you remember when he rode in on the donkey? And they're like, oh, now I understand what he was doing. I had no idea what was going on. You too? You too? Yeah, what was that? And now it's like, now it makes total sense what Jesus was doing. And then we're told that there's like two kinds of crowds. There's crowds who are already in Jerusalem for Passover. And then there's crowds who specifically had seen the miracle with Lazarus. And they're going and they're telling other people. So basically what we're seeing is this excitement is growing about Jesus. Surely someone who can summon a dead man back to life, surely he can deliver us from the yoke of Caesar. Can you imagine how powerful that person would be if we fight against Rome and they're killing us? Jesus can just raise them back to life. We're going to be unstoppable. And the Pharisees, their response is, okay, we're not gaining anything. And the whole world has gone after him. So one, they're being a little bit melodramatic. It's like the whole world is going to settle down, Pharisees. But two, they're not wrong. It's actually quite ironic because the whole world will go after Jesus. And the, 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 now John in, the, in this next section is going to say, look, look how right the Pharisees are because here come some Greeks now. The Pharisees are worried. It's not just the Jews. The whole world is going after Jesus. And then right in verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Right? So you have the Pharisees saying, everyone's going after, the whole world is going to Jesus. And then it's like John says, yeah, you're right. Look, here come some Greeks. Now, these Greeks are coming to Jerusalem for Passover, and so these are non-Jewish people. These uh, would be what, were, what they would call God-fearers. These, this is like the centurion. This is like other people who weren't Jews, but they feared the God of Israel, and they worshipped the God of Israel, even though they weren't Jewish. So they're coming to celebrate Passover, but most likely they would stay in the court of Gentiles in the temple. They weren't allowed to go in any farther, but these were Gentiles. These are non-Jewish people, and they come to Philip, uh, possibly because Philip actually has a Greek name, and they asked, we want to see Jesus, right? So even now, Gentiles are curious, who is this Jesus guy that we're hearing about? And so I love that Philip then goes to Andrew, hey, come with me, Andrew, and then Philip and Andrew go to Jesus, and here's Jesus' this is his, his answer, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So keep in mind, all throughout John, what have we heard when different things happen? Uh, his hour hadn't come yet, right? They tried to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't because his hour hadn't come yet. And so all along in John, the hour of Jesus refers to his death. And so all along we've heard it's not time, it hasn't come yet, it hasn't come yet. And now these Greeks, these Gentile men come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus goes, now my hour is here. It's like Gentiles are now coming to see me and they want to follow me. Now it's time for me to die. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified is actually what Jesus says. Glorified not with the fanfare not with the palm branches, not with the crowds, not with the hosannas, but glorified by being crucified. And then in verse 24, Jesus gives this little mini parable. A grain of wheat, or, or rather, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So it's this, it's this example of the harvest. If, if I'm going to have a harvest, if I want to have fruits and vegetables or wheat or whatever it is. For this example, it's wheat specifically, but it, it applies to any kind of growing. If I want to have a harvest of wheat, I can't just keep the, the bag of seeds and go, where's my wheat? Why isn't it growing? Jesus says, no, you have to actually put it into the ground. And he uses the, the metaphor of it has to die. You actually have to put your, your seed in the ground and it dies and then it bears much fruit. So Jesus is saying, I actually have to go to the cross to achieve salvation for us. So you have to, you have to see the multiple layers going on. The crowds are shouting out, save us! And, and they speak way more than they know. Jesus is like, I'm, I am here to save you, but I have to die in order to do that. Death is a necessary condition condition for the, the generation of new life. And then Jesus applies it not just to himself, but to all of his followers. He says, anyone who loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life will keep it. 
If anyone serves Jesus, you have to follow him. Where Jesus is, there his servants are. And if anyone serves Jesus, the Father honors him. So basically Jesus says, okay, if you love your life, meaning if you are living solely for the here and now, if your life consists of pleasure, comfort, ease, if you are obsessed with loving your life right now, then you're actually going to end up losing it in the end. Because loving your life is, a, is essentially, it's, it's a denial of God's sovereignty over you. It's an elevation of yourself. Loving your life, and I have to make my life comfortable and pleasurable, and I love everything about, and I don't want to lose anything that I have. It's essentially idolatry. But Jesus says, but if you hate your life, then you'll actually end up keeping it. And what he means by that is if you deny yourself, if you take up your cross, if you don't pander to your own self-interest, if you decline to make yourself the focus of all of your interest and perception, if you do that, you'll actually keep your life. So do you notice how, how opposite that is, right? Righty, tidy, lefty. I'm just yanking on it and it's not working. I'm trying to keep my life. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to lose it. Actually hate your life and you'll keep it. So notice the contrast. I mean, this passage is full of contrast. The crowds are yelling, Jesus is king. Save us from Rome. Let's go. Let's do this, Jesus. We're excited. You're the Messiah. Let's get going here. And Jesus comes and he says, actually, I have to die. And not only me, but my followers also have to die. <laughs> and be servants. Like, it is so opposite of what the crowds want. And this shows us, and I've talked about this lots over the years, this is the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. Everything about Jesus' kingdom is so counterintuitive to the world and to our flesh. Everything about his kingdom. Right? You look at all the kingdoms of the world, you look at uh, uh, your own life, and Jesus' kingdom is so upside-down. Like, just think about everything. His birth. Here is the king of the world. The savior of mankind. The, ki the, the, the king who is the king of all kings. And how is he born? To unwed, teenage, broke parents. Where is he born? Essentially in a barn or a cave. or It's meant for animals. Who's the first people to visit him? Other kings, right? We would think. Now shepherds, literally outcasts of society. And you go, that's how this, the king of all kings is born? That's his birth story? And then Jesus teaches, and right, he sits up on the, the mountain, and he goes through the Beatitudes, which is essentially the opposite of everything the world tells us. He goes, blessed, and we go, okay, here we go, blessed are who? The poor. And you go, what? And you know, the word blessed literally means happy. So you want to be happy? You got to be poor in spirit. And I can, I can assure you people are did I hear that right? Blessed are you when you mourn. You go, mourn? Like when, when I'm at a funeral and I'm mourning the death of a loved one, then I'm happy and blessed? Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. And we would go, that's not, that seems like a curse. That doesn't seem like a blessing, Jesus. That is so opposite of everything that we are told. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, the greatest among you, and we go, okay, yeah, who? Who's the greatest? The best teacher? The best preacher? The best leader? Nope, the greatest among you is your servant. 
Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we go, that's the opposite, Jesus. And then he says, if you want to be first, make yourself last. And like the competitive part of me is like, but I want to be first. And Jesus says, well, if you want to be first, then make yourself last. And you go, or even Paul continues this. The early church continues this teaching of the kingdom of God is so opposite. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Like on, on one hand, Paul's talking about you and me, the church. God chose what is foolish. Literally, that word is moros. Do you know what word we get from moros? Morons. Literally. So just embrace it. If you're a Christian, you are a moron. And Paul says God specifically chooses what is moros, what is silly and stupid and moronic, to shame the world. And we go, that seems so opposite, Jesus. It is. So Jesus completely rejected the crowd's view of his kingship. Was Jesus still king? Yeah, you bet. He is. He was and he is. But Jesus rejected the use of power and force and might and taking over. Jesus chose the, the cross. He chose to die. And then he called his followers to die as well. Now here's where, here's where it feels like, right, I'm wrenching on this thing, lefty-loosey, and it's not working because actually it's meant to go the other way. There's growing in our world, there are Christians who believe well, okay, yeah, Jesus was humble that time, but now as Christians, it's our job to take over the planet by force. We got to conquer. We got to win society. We got to Christianize everybody. And so the thinking is, okay, is Jesus king? Yes. Is he king right now? Yes. Does he have all authority in heaven and earth? Matthew 28. Yes. Is there evil and sin and injustice and wickedness in the world? Yes. Is it our job as Christians to go and take over the government and march and fight and Christianize and sanitize everything? No. That sounds an awful lot like the crowds, which Jesus rejected. And listen, it's fascinating. When you read church history, the church has tried this over and over and over and over and over. And you know how it turns out every time? a massive disaster when the church says you know what i think we can just take over by force let's do it like the crusades maybe terrible like we've tried this over and over and over we're wrenching on it why isn't this working it's supposed to work this way and i know the inclination is to think okay well jesus came the first time and he was humble and his kingdom was so different but now it's not like that now Yes, it is. The kingdom of God now is still backwards and upside down to every other kingdom in the world. So it's not as if Jesus' kingdom was so different from the kingdoms of the world, but now he's raised from the dead, and now his kingdoms, his, it just looks like every other kingdom, and we're supposed to take over like every other kingdom. It doesn't work like that. Here's why I know this. In the book of Revelation, if you read Revelation... Revelation is a, uh, literally, the word apocalypse means you're pulling back the curtain on human history. So what John gets in Revelation, it's like all of these historical events are happening throughout history, and, and God in his mercy says, John, I'm going to pull back the curtain so you can see what's actually going on throughout history. 
Here's what's happening in the spiritual realm while all of these physical things are happening. And if you read the book of Revelation, you see the return of Jesus on Judgment Day in Revelation 19. And when Jesus returns, the second coming on Judgment Day, yes, he is riding a white horse and he's ready for battle. But everywhere else in the book of Revelation, which is the story of human history, everywhere else, you know how Jesus is presented? He's the lamb who was slain. No, not, yeah, he was like that, but now he's like this. No, all throughout Revelation, Jesus is presented. He is on the throne, Revelation 5. He is ruling and reigning. How? As the lamb who was slain. Right? An angel says to John, behold, look, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is on the throne. And you would expect to see what? A lion. And John turns, and what does he see? A bloodied little lamb on the throne. This is how Jesus rules and reigns as the lamb who was slain. And then the question is, well, how then do you and I as his believers, as, as, as his followers, how do you and I conquer? How do we overcome, right? Because you look at the world and you go, the world is a mess. And we want to, we want to advance God's kingdom and we want to overcome and we want to conquer. Revelation tells us how. Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him. Who's the him? Satan. They've conquered Satan. How? By the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Do you know how we conquer? The same way Jesus did. We die. Every time a martyr dies for Jesus, they've won. This is why it's so frustrating to the enemies of God, because they go, we can't stamp this out. We kill them, and they win. That's how we win, people. By, by the blood of the Lamb, so by the spilled blood of Jesus, by the word of our testimony, so by our witness and saying, this is the gospel and the fact that we are willing today. Stop talking about Jesus or I'll kill you. Well, then kill me. That's how we conquer. So there's a couple of ditches that I think that we are in danger of falling into if we don't keep that in mind. The kingdom of God is still upside down and backwards to the rest of the world. It makes no sense. Because you go, really? A kingdom advances by all of their citizens being willing to die? That makes no sense. So here's the ditch on one side. On one side, and I've seen this this view growing and growing in popularity. On one side, it's, well, as Christians, if we just vote the right guy in, if we just, um, if we only support Christian businesses, if we only homeschool, if we write angry emails, if we demand certain things, then that's us taking over the world and we're winning. That is a ditch. I think it's a distraction from gospel ministry and seeing lost people saved. Now, also, a ditch on the other side is saying, well, yeah, Jesus is king, but he's only king of my heart. No. No, he's king. And so I know Christians then, well, Jesus is king of my heart, so I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and not pay attention to anything going on in the world. No, don't do that either. Jesus is king, and yes, you can vote and you can make your opinion heard, but there, there's ditches, right, that we fall into where we go, yes, I'm winning, I'm taking back society, and I'm doing all these things. And are people actually being saved? I'll give you an example. Many of you know the story of China, but 60 years ago, China put up what they called the bamboo curtain. It wasn't an actual <laughs> curtain, right? It's a metaphor. But they basically, uh, they basically kicked all the missionaries out. 
They basically said it is now illegal to be a Christian. Christianity is not allowed in our country. No more missionaries. They killed and imprisoned all the leaders of the Christian movement. And, and Christianity, we thought, as people looking from the outside, we thought, well, Christianity is going to die out in China. Now, what didn't they do? They didn't go, well, we got to fight for their rights to meet, and we got to fight for this and that. We just went, okay, I guess there's going to be no more Christians in China. Fifty years later, missionaries went back into China. More than 65 million Christians. Because that's how the kingdom spreads. The kingdom of God spreads best when Christians are put under the thumb of tyranny. It's, it spreads like wildfire. Because it's so different than the rest of the world. So then how do you and I, right, we ask that question, how do you and I live in the kingdom of God now? What do our lives look like? How do you and I, if we say, yes, we want to advance the kingdom of Jesus, we want to honor him as king, Matthew 28, we want to make disciples of all nations. How do we do this without falling into these ditches where we go, okay, well, I'm going to completely disengage from all society or the opposite, I'm going to be really angry and fight against everything that's bad in this world. Where's the balance? So our passage gives us four hard truths and then four results of living by those hard truths. Right? So the four hard truths are, are the upside down, backwards, countercultural, this doesn't make any sense to live like that. And then the four results are, okay, because the, the kingdom of God is so different. So number one, to live as people in the kingdom, to advance the kingdom of Jesus, to honor him as king, you and I die. Now, I don't mean that literally. You might. You might get killed for following Jesus. But we die. Right? Verse 24, Jesus says, a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies. So he's speaking about his own death. But then Jesus also calls his followers all over the place. Take up your cross every day. Die to yourself every day, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might not lo no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So following Jesus is a life of dying to yourself. So in a couple different ways, we die to sin, right? We put sin to death, but also we die to our desires, our wants, my plans for my life. We say, no, I'm going to die to that. It's I, I am following Jesus. We used to pursue selfish pleasures, but now we pursue what honors God. So really, when Jesus says that we have to die, it's a denial of ourselves. We are dying to ourselves. We stop serving ourselves, and we serve others, and we serve God, right? It seems so counterintuitive. You want to you wanna be influential, and you want to spread the gospel, and you want to, right, overcome the world? Then you have to die. And we go, I don't understand. But here's the result, right? Here's the result of what uh, of Jesus says. Right? We, we die to ourselves. The grain goes into the ground, but what happens? Then it bears much fruit. So we've, uh, in the last couple of years, we've um, tried our hand at gardening. And I know so many of you do that too, right? And every year you kind of get your garden beds, or I don't know how you do it, but we have a little 
corner of our yard and we have a garden bed and we planted seeds and then you water it and then you wait. And I'm super impatient because I'm like, just grow already. How hard is that? <laughs> but then you wait a few weeks and every day, I remember we would go out and Mol my wife Molly was like, well, you know, there's no, there's no sprouts. It's been two weeks or whatever, right? Maybe it didn't take, maybe they didn't. And then all of a sudden in the last couple of days, you see sprouts coming up through the dirt. And you go, okay, look, there's life. And so for, for you to bear fruit, so to speak, right, in your gardens, things have to go into the ground and die. That's Jesus' whole point. Unless you plant your seeds, unless you plant your garden, nothing is going to grow. And some of you, as you follow Jesus, you go, why am I not bearing fruit in my own life? Why am I not seeing fruit? Perhaps it's because you're not willing to die. Right? Why am I not seeing the fruit of the Spirit? Why am I not seeing myself grow in my love of Jesus? Why am I not seeing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control? Why am I not seeing the fruit of ministry as I share the gospel with others? Maybe, just maybe, you're not willing to die. You're going, no, I want to hold on to my wants and my desires and my needs, and I'm still being selfish about my life. Well, of course you won't see fruit. You have to die to see fruit. That's the first truth. If we want to see the kingdom of Jesus advance, we have to die, and the result is we will see much, much fruit. Secondly, Jesus says you have to hate your life in this world. Right? He says if you love your life, you'll lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. So that doesn't mean that we go around um, depressed and hating life. That's not what Jesus means. That doesn't mean that we have to, to self-sabotage and make ourselves mi more miserable to prove that, see, I hate my life, Jesus, because it's awful. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not, it's not saying that literally I have to hate everything about my life. So I'll give you an example. There was a charity that I read about that was in uh, a third world country, and they were in this, uh, this building, and they were trying to do ministry. And so people uh, raised money for this charity to say, hey, you can now put a hot water tank in your building. You can have hot water. And they said, no, we're not going to use the money for that because we're supposed to hate our lives. It's supposed to be hard to follow Jesus. And the people were like, well, this is above and beyond what you can do to help. We just want to bless you with that. And they were like, no, no hot water allowed. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I have to work extra hard to make my life miserable. That's, that's not what he's getting at. What he means is the things of this temporary life shouldn't matter much to us. If people speak well of you or if they hate you, it really doesn't matter. If you have a lot of things or you only have a few things, it really doesn't matter. If you're persecuted and lied about, it doesn't matter. If you are famous and popular and well-liked or you, are just, you live your life unheard of, no one knows who you are, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, Jesus talked about this. He says, why do you guys worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink? Why are you guys obsessing over the things of this life? He says, seek the kingdom of God, and I'll take care of that stuff for you. So hating your life is just keeping eternity in mind, going, my life is really short. I don't need to obsess about all the things in my life. And here's the result. Jesus says, if you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for eternity. 
right? Matthew 16, Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So if you actually live um, in a way that with this kind of open, open-handed gladness where, okay, yes, I'm in a season of, of, you know, good things. Okay, great. Thank you, God. And then I go through a season of real uh, crappy things. I just go, okay, it doesn't, it doesn't matter much. I'm living in light of eternity. I'm, I don't need to love my life on this earth. I can just, just live. And the result of that is that you keep your life for all of eternity. It seems so backwards, doesn't it? Because the world says, no, you got to make sure you love your life. Marry the right person, have the right number of kids, drive the right kind of car, buy the right kind of house, have the right kind of job, have the right kind of vacation. You need to love everything about your life. And Jesus goes, actually, in my kingdom, you have to hate your life. Just don't worry about that stuff. Thirdly, Jesus says, the the third hard truth, you and I, if we're going to advance the kingdom of Jesus, if we're going to live as kingdom people, then we follow Jesus on the Calvary road. Verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And what was the road that Jesus walked? It was a road of suffering. So even 1 Peter 2.21 says, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Right? I, I have heard very few, um, for lack of a better term, pitches to follow Jesus that include this. Hey, follow Jesus because then you can live a life of suffering. Usually it's follow Jesus and he'll fix all your problems and your life will be sweet and it'll be smooth sailing till heaven. And Jesus says, if you actually want to serve me, you have to follow me. You have to be willing. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we're gluttons for punishment, right? I think it's a misstep to then say, well, okay, now I've got to seek out suffering to prove that I'm like following Jesus. But are you willing to go through it for the sake of following him? Because here's the result. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So the result is, if you follow in the footsteps of Jesus and you're willing to suffer with him, you join him in glory. Fourthly, we become servants. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, so as followers of Jesus, then you need to be a servant. Meaning, you are now the low rung on the totem pole. You're at the bottom. Follow Jesus and you can get instantly demoted to last place. (laughs) He says you have to be a servant. You are called as a follower of Jesus to live a life of service to people, to put other people ahead of yourself, to seek their interests, to not seek your own interests, to to literally, and I mean, Corlin's going to touch on it in a few weeks, to literally wash each other's feet, right? I'm going to actually serve you. And here's the result, which is mind-blowing. If anyone serves me, end of verse 26, The Father will honor him. I mean, do you want to be honored by God the Father? Then serve people. Like, I don't don't even, I can't even fathom what that will be like. To have God honor you. And the way we get that is that we lay aside our wants and our needs and we serve one another. So think about a church, think about a group of followers of Jesus in a city. So just use our city. Think of Fort St. John and think of us as a church living like this in our city. 
dying to ourselves, meaning I'm going to die to sin. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm going to actually, I'm going to die to my own wants and needs and desires. I'm going to pursue the good of everyone else around me. I'm going to live for eternity, so I'm not going to stress and obsess over my life here. Oh, property taxes went up 0.8%. Ah! My life is ruined. It's like, you know what? Okay, we'll roll with it. I'm not living for the here and now. I'm living for eternity. People, a church, a group of followers who are willing to follow Jesus even into pain and suffering and who committed their lives to serving others, that would radically change a family, a neighborhood, a city if a group of Christians said, we're going to devote our lives to that. You know what won't change a city? Angry emails, picketing, yelling. That does nothing. But to have a group of Christians say, we're going to devote our lives to dying to ourselves. And I'm going to serve everyone else around me. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus calls us to live in. And so the question then to end with is, okay, do I actually live like this? And think about your own spheres of whatever, right? If you have a family, do I live like this in my family? Do I die to myself? Do I serve them? Am I living for eternity? Do I live like that in my family? And then just kind of go whatever circles of it. Do I live like that at my job? Do I die to myself? Do I just uh, serve others at my job? Do I live for eternity? And then whatever your spheres of influence are, think about your neighborhood or the, the PAC meetings that you go to at school or whatever it is, right? Go, do I live like this? Is, is this the type of Christian I am? And I just want to end with, I, I know that it seems so counterintuitive because the way the world is going, we're like, we got to take over and fight. Well, that's like, that's like pulling on a left-handed thread, thinking that you're loosening it. You will get frustrated and it won't work. The kingdom of God is so opposite to everything in this world. And when we live like that, Jesus promises us, if you die, you will bear much fruit. So, Father, I just thank you for, again, a good reminder of your kingdom. Um, Jesus, you are unlike any other king or ruler that has ever existed or will ever exist. And Jesus, you are the king. You are the king of kings. You are on your throne. But I love that in the book of Revelation, the picture we're getting, or the picture that we get until your very return in judgment day is that you rule as a lamb who was slain. So even today, your kingdom is so opposite to everything else in the world. So forgive us, God, when we can be like the crowds. That we go, yes, Jesus is king. Let's do this. Let's take over by force. When really you call us as your followers to die. To lay our lives down. To serve others. To come last. So Jesus, would you help us live like that? Because I've seen it. I've seen it. When Christians devote their lives to living like that, it produces much fruit. Neighborhoods changed. Families reunited. Even whole cities changed. When Christians say, we're not going to serve ourselves, we're going to serve others. And so do your work, God. I, I know that those are hard truths to hear, that if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to die. We have to hate our lives in this world. We have to follow the road you walked. And we have to serve, live a life of service. 
But God, we look at the results of those things and it is so worth it that we would bear much fruit, that we would keep our lives for eternity, that we would spend uh, uh, eternity with you, Jesus, and then if we live like this, that the Father honors us. So Jesus, it is so worth it to live like this. And so help us, God, and I pray it specifically for our church that if, if this group of believers said, yes, we're going to live like this, I pray that we would see much fruit. As followers of Jesus, people in this room say, I'm going to die to myself every day. I'm going to serve my neighborhood. I'm going to serve my coworkers. I'm going I, I, to live a life of being last because that's what you did, Jesus, and we want to follow you. So just do your work in our hearts, God. Help us to live in this upside-down kingdom of yours and that we would find much joy in doing so. And so I just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.